You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Today's episode is all about legacy. Legacy used to be called runoff, and runoff conjured up slightly negative connotations of difficult old grey hairs in dusty out-of-the-way offices eking out a dwindling pot of claims until retirement. I used to think that its keenness to rename itself was a sign that it wanted to rehabilitate itself in some way and that the change was merely cosmetic or aesthetic. But over the years, it's become obvious that the words runoff had themselves to be put into runoff. This is because legacy has developed into a sophisticated capital management tool and is far more about adding value and operational efficiency than the handling of intractable old claims. Today's guest is the embodiment of that leap in sophistication over the past two decades. Tom Booth is the CEO of Darag, a legacy player with access to capital and global growth ambitions. His background is in high finance, and I think it really shows through in this encounter. Legacy is becoming a very useful long-term partner of the industry, and people like Tom are only going to make it more relevant in the future. We slay a lot of myths in this episode, so stay tuned. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. Um, I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. I'll start with a really, really generic question, Tom. When you're meeting people in the industry for the first time and they ask what you do and they don't know about legacy, how do you describe the legacy world to those in the live market? Yeah, I describe legacy as, as risk transfer, sometimes kind of full legal transfer, but it's really risk transfer of liabilities associated with largely expired policies but sometimes expiring policies. So I guess it's essentially another form of reinsurance, but in this case executed retrospectively after policies have been written, in which an insurer or reinsurer's exposure to adverse development is managed, or in fact, in a lot of cases, 100% seeded. I guess it's always useful to talk about motivations, and they're not always exposure management. Because legacy deals can often be driven entirely or mainly by the desire to bring operational relief to a discontinued portfolio or indeed capital relief or both. And sometimes even if it's an over-reserved book and acceleration of profit recognition. So, you know, we're increasingly being seen, I think, as a manager of exposure and risk and another way that insurance companies or reinsurance companies can release capital and deploy on their core business. 
Because when you say operational relief, you mean, say you've got a book of business that you've stopped doing, you've still got to have specialist people handling the claims on those business, and that's becoming a diminishing... Exactly, and you 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 often find because the underwriters have potentially left the business, that becomes a slightly strange portfolio. It's managed by claims people who are sort of fitting it around the day job of managing the kind of claims on the go-forward portfolio many situations even sometimes people have got legacy systems they've got these legacy portfolios from acquisition it's not worth them integrating them because they're not very timely sort of exercise and again they're not using that portfolio as a sort of go forward part of the plan so i think we often oversell this capital relief side it's a very useful byproduct i'm not saying sometimes it isn't a key motivation but typically it's about creating certainty both kind of economically but also operationally and there are win-wins here, I think. So that's the thing that we always try and focus on. Some of the players are always focusing on that piece of it, which is an element of it. But I think that it gives potentially negative connotations to the marketplace where somehow this is driven by necessity and it's not about necessity. That would be like saying that having reinsurance generally is sort of out of necessity. I mean, it is, it's another way of managing your exposure and your risk. And I would say that legacy falls into the same category. What do you think the most common myths and misconceptions are there about legacy? I mean, I think just building on what I've touched on just now, I mean, I guess there is a myth that legacy deals are mostly driven by a distress situation and that they tend to involve toxic and potentially highly volatile portfolios. Of course, the market started with most of the deals being around asbestos and environmental exposures. We certainly moved largely away from that. You know, and there are deals that, of course, are still driven by more distressed situations or portfolios that have created very high loss ratios where there is still kind of ongoing volatility. So I'm not saying that those opportunities don't still exist because they do and they always will be part of our universe. But at the same time, I think those deals are actually dwarfed increasingly by those that fit into the general life cycle bucket. Legacy really now being a mainstream way of refocusing businesses and bringing this operational efficiency that I've talked about, optimizing in capital and indeed refocusing ongoing business plans to be the most profitable for in terms of return on equity etc so there are many regular sellers that recognize that their non-core business is our core business and that there are benefits on both sides this is actually a rare win-win where we can effectively bring some efficiency on the claims management and other efficiencies at a certain stage of the portfolio so that's certainly a myth that i would like to dispel I guess the others, again, I think this is largely waning or has waned, but there are some people in the market that still will ascertain or or make out that we legacy players make our money from disputing and refuting claims. And I'd say we're arguably even more incentivized than the sellers, actually, to ensure a rapid, fair and efficient settlement process to support our business models, where really recycling capital is absolutely paramount. And that's particularly the case with the current interest rate environment. And obviously on top of that, reputation is absolutely key. I think this market's turning much more from a sort of one-off type market where a legacy player deals with just its customer once to being a repeat partner, much more akin to a normal reinsurance insurer relationship. People are now seeing 20 years of people's portfolios being managed very effectively and efficiently, both from a client and a regulator's perspective by the legacy market. And I think it's very much come of age. 
it's more of a modern management tool where everyone's looking for operational capital efficiencies and it's really not about sitting on old claims and collecting income because there isn't exactly, really any investment exactly. income anyway. Right? Correct, correct. No, absolutely. And then of course, there are slightly differing business models between the different players. I think even the more aggressive asset strategy business models have become much less so post the recent investment market, albeit that of course things have largely come back i think it just highlights the risk and are you getting paid sufficiently even if the spread levels have risen a little bit from pre-crisis then they are being artificially held down i guess by a lot of central bank buying of corporates and then how does one look at really the risk around other risk assets there are players who will put more weight on that but even they i think are backing it out or chalking that into their models certainly for us that was never part of our business and we're very very conservative on investments with a very traditional kind of asset liability matched model in government and corporate credit so really for us it's all about assessment of the portfolios accurate assessment and then the claims management process that was on one of my later questions but now we've got into that topic i might as well ask you so you said there just to double confirm that really a bit like the rest of the industry the financial turmoil of the first and beginning of the second quarters this year has bounced back in the way that all the financial markets have any of the losses on the assets absolutely, side of the portfolio have kind of come back. i mean yeah exactly and i mean for darag itself i was saying we have no equity exposure and extremely conservative no hedge fund exposure so the only risk asset in inverted commas was a sort of very small allocation to a non-investment grade corporate credit fund the losses that we had was really on a, an a and better average corporate credit portfolio where we were just taking hits alongside everybody else on longer duration portfolios and largely that's all bounced back but you know it's always a reminder of course because it depends on one's accounting for these things and so sometimes it doesn't go through the PL, but obviously you do get you know you have the requirement to mark to market solvency purposes it's just it's a reminder of the volatility of assets even high quality assets with some duration and so the biggest corollary, again, you mentioned of all of this crisis so far has been a return to the absolutely ultra low or almost zero or below zero interest rates. How does that bode for profitability of the legacy sector, obviously, as a big holder of long term assets? I mean, for future transactions, then it doesn't matter, essentially, because, of course, we're going to be factoring in the investment income that we can get in the market at the time that we strike the deal. And the risk being that you get a target yield on a portfolio and then the market moves against you. And I would hope that now that the chances of portfolio yield dropping even further from the current levels is fairly low and was lower than it was almost by definition. So our strategy, as I'm sure is the case with all the other legacy players, is that when we onboard a new portfolio, we match the assets to the liability duration. And therefore, you know, we should have locked in the yield that we put in the model in the first place. So, you know, other than having the mark to market issues from solvency or collateral purposes from an income perspective there shouldn't be any risk unless there's default which given the conservative nature of our portfolio and indeed i'm sure our peers as well that that is not a significant risk at all i mean uh, i.e a very immaterial one so i think it then comes down to uh, you can read that both ways because most insurers don't discount their reserves and therefore, I guess if the legacy buyer can discount implicitly in their price at a higher level, then they have to take less of a hit, if you like, or cost to the transaction. But at the same time, it's absolutely the same if they're looking at it in a true economic sense, because the foregone investment income is a lot lower as well. 
say the deal shouldn't look any different in true economics than it did with the interest rates being higher. So I would argue that our pricing is absolutely the same as it always was. It's just this upfront price may be a little bit higher than it would have been with higher investment returns. But it doesn't impact the profitability of the legacy company, either from the past or going forwards. And I think there's pros and cons to where rates are in terms of new transactions. There's other things that are pushing legacy deals into the market outside of low investment returns. Tom, you're relatively new in post at Darag. Could you maybe describe for some of the listeners what Darag is and in what place it plays within the legacy ecosystem? The wider Darag group is now present in operation in all key and established runoff jurisdictions. So that's Europe, the US, Bermuda and the UK. Until the last year or so, the group was seen primarily as a continental European runoff player. And it continues to distinguish itself from many of, of its peers in having a large runoff focused operation in Hamburg and the German carrier, which now in fact has a balance sheet and has always had a distinguished reputation and track record. So this does set us apart, especially in the German speaking market from our peers, where there is often a preference to deal with a known and established counterparty regulated by BaFin with the security benefits that that brings. So we are often the go-to market in that region. But at the same time, our recent expansion has capitalized on the strength of the experience and relationships of the expanded management team, including myself and the staff. And so we set up in Bermuda a year ago and we have an experienced team there focused on writing quite substantial LPTs at times to cover US liabilities, be those in domestic PNC carriers or Bermuda-based carriers, captives, other self-insured entities. We also acquire companies, whether those are PNC companies or captives or Bermudan reinsurers. And we also do innovations. And then our onshore expansion in the US continues as well, mostly in the claims, legal and financial side. So we're fast building a new hub, in fact, around Atlanta as we speak. And we've also expanded into the UK. So we've now bought two UK insurers in runoff, and that was a deliberate strategy to capitalise on the strength of the number of us in the management team in the London market and to assume UK business through part seven and build out our operational capabilities here in the UK. We also provided, um, which was widely publicised, collateralised reinsurance cover to a Lloyd syndicate at the end of last year in respect to a US commercial auto book that was written through an MGA. And so we've done transactions with Lloyd syndicates already and keen to provide similar other options. And at the same time, we're examining ways that we could provide such cover from within Lloyd's, so from a Lloyd syndicate that we provide capital to ourselves and how we might look to participate in the RITC market in a cost-effective way. We also, just to say that we're not actually a legacy player focused on smaller deals. There are a number of legacy players that are focused on the smaller end of the market, and that is no longer Darag. We have a much expanded balance sheet. We've got excellent access to capital from three very supportive, deep-pocketed private equity groups. We assumed over half a billion of reserves last year making similar excellent progress this year. You might have seen an announcement in the press on Friday that we did another substantial deal in the US. And so, you know, our deal size really is this 50 to 250 type of reserve range, but we've certainly got appetite beyond that. And indeed, we will do some smaller transactions as well and that are created to the business model. Just quickly, a couple of abbreviations for the lay people in the audience is that uh, LPT is lost portfolio transfer and RITC is reinsurance to close, which is a Lloyd's device by which uh, you novate one year into the next. Now that you've got a much more of a global perspective, where are the most attractive deals coming from for you? Yeah, sure. I think in the US, we still see 
a great opportunity, I guess, in the commercial auto space. I think there was a lot of business that was poorly priced and a lot of withdrawal from that market. And there are a lot of people looking for finality. And we've developed a really strong expertise on the claim side there. I think we feel very confident on our pricing capabilities. So that's certainly an area on the back of two transactions, sizable transactions in that area that we're keen to expand and we see continued demand there. Likewise, in the US, we assumed quite a substantial GL book and there still seems to be quite a lot of demand. Again, where often the results have been poor in getting legacy transactions around that. The workers' compensation space, certainly on the primary side, through the self-insured market especially, we kind of see there being continued attractive opportunities in that sector. I think everyone is going to be very cautious about assuming 2020 risk, which is potentially exposed to COVID-19, because I think it's very challenging to understand that risk right now and understand the potential impact and quantify it. So it would be something that we would be staying away from for the foreseeable future. But certainly risk is obviously not affected or years before the pandemic is attractive. And then in Europe, we still see quite a lot of opportunity in the motor liability space, which has been a real strength of Darag for some time and stretching way beyond before my time. And it's something that we're kind of excellent at managing is obviously a lot of volume in Europe. Players that are coming in and out and some territories that have been challenging for pricing and has a reasonably long tail and it can be quite involved from free court processes. But, you know, we're also seeing, I think, more opportunity on the sort of professional liability side. We've been cautiously looking at some med-mal opportunities as well. It's, it's not the first person to say, and I won't be the last, but obviously quite a lot of opportunities seemingly in Lloyd's. I mean, obviously those books are generally pretty broad, but I mean, clearly there are some opportunities there. And I think we are excited that there is, now that the hard market seems to be coming, not already there in, in a number of places, that the, the likes of Lloyd's where there is a really visible attraction of recycling capital through effectively doing a legacy transaction with the legacy liabilities, particularly on a discontinued book, and freeing up that capital, as well as or as an alternative to raising capital or adding more reinsurance to support what should be hopefully a very profitable business plan going forward. So is it right to say that this trend to the hardening markets driving a lot of this? Is this desire to clear the decks a little bit and get rid of distractions so that the carriers can I, I focus their capital? I think that's right, and free up capital. And I mean, I think one's got to always be conscious that Lloyd's obviously runs its capital in a very different way from a normal insurance company. And so it's inevitably going to be more opportunities seen by Lloyd's groups to be able to redeploy the capital ahead of coming into line to then deploy on a new business plan or expanded business plan, albeit there's talk with Lloyd's to try and cap people's expansion. But nevertheless, I do see some considerable opportunity in Lloyd's itself. I think just because of the structure of the marketplace, I think it's sort of less the case in Europe where people tend to be very well capitalized anyway. And so often the drivers are quite different where it's really about just operational and, and reserve certainty rather than freeing up capital. And particularly now that things have bounced back, that, that the solvency ratios is still tend to be very high. So it's not so much of a driver, I think, as it would be in Lloyd's or potentially the UK more generally. Tom, I'd just like to get a handle on how much of that clearing the decks now we've got a hardening market, how much of the new demand is really coming from that? And for example, if the market stopped hardening and went back to being very competitive again, would that dry up that demand? Or is there something else at play? I think what we're seeing is that there are certainly more potential opportunities coming to market where Lloyd's groups are testing the legacy marketplace to see whether this is an attractive alternative or addition to freeing capital. 
versus other techniques or raising capital, as I was saying. But I think it'll be interesting to see whether all of those deals get done or not, because there's obviously a clearing price. Everybody's cost of capital has risen, I guess, as a sort of result of the pandemic. And there is more supply. And I think that structurally in the legacy market right now, maybe the competitive pressures for us, fortunately, have waned somewhat. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether all of these potential opportunities actually become executed. I doubt it. So I think there's an element of things being tested as opposed to actually happening. It's sort of looking at, I mean, obviously the insurance market itself has a capital cycle. The legacy market is much more complicated, going back to your question, in a sense, because there are always failed companies, however strong or weak the underwriting market is. Or there are also opportunities where people want liquidity, whether they're privately-backed companies and they want to sell the subsidiary, or there are just portfolios that just have not worked. And I think we can see quite a lot of opportunity in the corporate liability space, particularly in the US, because again, liquidity is key now. And there's probably quite a lot of corporate consolidation, which again, drives liabilities to the marketplace, the legacy liabilities to the marketplace. So I wouldn't say that suddenly, I mean, we obviously, we've had a soft market for some time. It's actually been quite a good market for the legacy market, albeit that at times it's been very competitive for larger portfolios, but there are niches where we've been able to generally reasonable returns. And I think there will be a period now for the next one to two years which potentially does look more attractive than it has done for a while both for the legacy market and the live market i don't think suddenly that we're going to then have a complete crash of opportunities i think we're potentially just going to see more opportunities for the next year or two and also it does take a little bit of time to prepare these opportunities so we're only just beginning to see the flow coming out of covid19 related opportunities i guess hard market type opportunities as things are coming to market and people assessing what the right outcome is and whether the legacy market is a good opportunity and i i just think generally going back to what we were saying at the beginning it's this complete legitimization of the legacy market as a tool for operational capital efficiency etc which just bodes well generally regardless of soft or hard market yep i'm not going to say that the hard market isn't going to be helpful for the next 12 to 24 months it'd be strange for me to say it wasn't but at the same time yeah i've got cautious optimism on one level because it's also making sure that things are being done at a price that works for both parties we'll get back to the COVID 19 later on but i think i'd like to ask you about this trend obviously that total legitimization of legacy as a capital management and operational management tool has led to deals becoming fresher and fresher. And you even said at the beginning about unexpired portfolios, semi-live portfolios now being transferred earlier as strategies move and nimble players make the most of the opportunities that they've got. How ready is legacy to do that? And what sort of tools do you need to have to be equipped to deal with books that are still far less mature? I mean, I think it's a mixed bag, actually, in terms of sort of our preparation and willingness to do it. There's been a lot of talk about legacy being prepared to take greener and greener risk. I mean, I would say that there's the limit to that. Clearly, our business model is not to be sort of assuming in the main live underwriting risk. But at the same time, I think there were, going back a few years, most legacy players ran a mile from it, sort of anything that wasn't reasonably mature because that didn't fit, so to speak. But I think that has changed. It obviously depends on the line of business because it depends on the tail of the portfolio. And clearly, it also depends on data. 
and data quality. I think it's very challenging for us to, and we do see these portfolios brought to market where they've had a foray into, say, a habitational program in the US or whatever, and they've been writing for two or three years maximum with very limited data beyond that. It's a very slow to emerge class, and it's extremely difficult for the legacy player to do anything other than that the live player did at the time, which was just look at the submission as a sort of underwriting submission. That's just not our business model. And then things have gone wrong in some way or shape because they've either they pulled out of that opportunity because some emerging experience is negative, which is going to make you even more suspect and it's going to be very difficult. So I think where Darag certainly is, is that we are happy to take some expiring risk. We're generally not happy to continue to take renewals unless they're very small as part of a non-cancellation type book where, you know, it's sort of what you've got to sort of take. But, and then and that will really only be on the basis that very predictable and has been very predictable and the kind of limits are pretty contained, you know, or we've got strong reinsurance programs. Then you can see portfolios that are brought to market with 10% case reserves, 90% IVNR. It's challenging. It's very difficult with kind of limited data. We've got the claim side and on the actuarial side, it becomes guesswork and it becomes like almost retrospective underwriting of something that's gone wrong. And that does not work. So, yeah, leave that to people who are brave enough to do, you know, our ability is to, I guess, price portfolios that are largely developed and get to a view of where we think the ultimate can do and hopefully where we can drive the ultimate down a bit more by some more proactive claims management, not because the transfer or accedence claims management isn't good. It's just that their attention's elsewhere. And this is our core and we'll make sure the attention's there and we'll drive better results. We'll create less leakage. And it's that arbitrage where it had been left for the season, the, the ultimate would have been higher than it would have been giving it to us. And in some way, we can make that transaction accretive to both sides. Let's go back to the COVID-19 point. So it's right to assume from what you said earlier that this is not something you want to be taking on. Obviously, you're there to remove a lot of uncertainty for people and give them certainty in many ways, but you're not really there to give people COVID-19 certainty on books that are still exposed. Not, not right now until the dust settles. And I think that as an industry, we're sort of able to quantify more easily and just look at the experience. There are just too many unknowns. That's a very blanket statement. So I'm not, I'm not saying that in the pockets that you can't get a bit more security already. But at the same time, some very short tail classes or where you've had rulings and so on. But it's just this is an area where obviously there's something that completely unexpected has hit the market. There are some risks around financial lines that, you know, are sort of quite unquantifiable, particularly now. Obviously, some political pressure in certain countries on BI exclusions and so on becomes challenging. I think we'll be there because we are there to assume risk and solve problems and take unwanted portfolios. But it'll be when the time's right and we're able to quantify that fairly. And it's about being fair to the other side as well. I mean, at the moment, you know, we're not in the market for guessing. And if that guess means we're going to have to put a ridiculous number on it, it doesn't work for the other side either. Do you think there would be other players would be more aggressive, more willing to take that on a legacy? I doubt it, to be honest. I mean, I can't speak for everybody else, but I would imagine most people would agree with what I've said. And then the gut feeling would be long term. Do you think there'll be substantial volumes of business coming out of COVID-19 but in a more mature but? Yeah, no, I, I think potentially, particularly out of Lloyd's, just because obviously it had more exposure than most just because of the lines of business and specialist business that it focuses on. But, you know, potentially, I think in some US carriers as well, 
I can certainly see there being some appetite to see those books when there's more stability on them. In the same way that from all crises, I guess you get that unless it's short tail hurricane losses, which you tend not to see that. Even there, you've had some sort of legacy solutions being created around some of the bleed on HIM, etc. A general question would be, obviously, as legacy players, and particularly as legacy players looking at mature books of business, you know, you're real experts of assessing strength in reserves and really kicking the tires on things. Now that we're going into this hardening, harder market or hard market, however we want to describe it, how well reserved do you feel the industry is and therefore how much more opportunity there might be for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's a great question and always to the hub of things. So it's obviously much easier to do legacy deals if books are well reserved already, because there's even the opportunity in such cases to strike transactions where the seeding actually makes a profit through the legacy transaction, because, you know, our view of reserves is substantially lower. I would say that only tends to happen in certain situations in Europe where there tends to be a more conservative reserving practices, particularly under sort of local gap. So I would maintain that we haven't seen any evidence of European players being less well-reserved than they used to be. I think there have been a lot of commentators, and, and I'd include myself in those, of saying that there do seem to be some issues around US casualty reserving more generally. So I think we are cautious. It very much depends on the counterparty, but there is evidence that there's continued reserve creep and perhaps some not hugely prudent reserving in places on that. So we are often coming to transactions and feeling that and often it's quite difficult for us to completely ascertain what part of their kind of block IBNR they've got for a portfolio we're looking at. But we do see lots of evidence often of step reserving and very kind of low levels of case reserving on casualty US casualty portfolios, but arguably they've got IBNR set and kind of set aside in a central depository. But whether that's sufficient or not, I guess depends on the counterparty really and the robustness of their reserving processes. And again coming down to data. I, I would also say that Lloyd's was tended to be seen to have pretty prudent reserving generally across the board and that legacy players have tended to find themselves doing quite well out of Lloyd's reserves. Generally speaking, not to say that a lot of that wasn't priced in on a number of the larger deals, especially because obviously the Lloyd syndicates know that there's that prudence there. I would say that that tend seems to be a bit less than it was, just sort of more generally. But again, you know, it all depends on the syndicate. I don't think that's, again, a very blanket statement because in certain cases that's not true at all. And there still remains some very robust reserving, continued releases in other cases and potentially with some of the newer platforms, perhaps less so. Yeah, that can be unfair because some of the newer platforms can be the opposite, absolute opposite. But as a generalisation, um, it does appear that there's less pattern than there used to be. One of the other big trends of the last five to six years has been legacy groups getting involved in live underwriting and acquiring live underwriting businesses. What's your assessment of that? Has that been a big success or, or a failure? I don't think it's been hugely successful. Having, I mean, obviously there was one of our peers certainly went that route in a quite a large way and was looking to dispose, you know, of that business. But I guess it appears in hindsight they were very right not to do that. And, uh, you know, now perhaps with the market turning up would be a means that perhaps that strategy will be vindicated or certainly the decision not to sell was certainly vindicated now. And then others have sort of done it in a smaller way or deployed a fronting model with a low retention. I think certainly from where I'm at as group CEO of Darag is that I do not want to be in live underwriting. I mean, we do have some live underwriting as an acquisition that we've acquired in, in Italy, but 
I'm certainly not wanting to grow that area of the business at all. I think it's quite different managing that business from managing a legacy business. I think there are some challenges around running both. I think some groups do successfully manage to, to keep them apart and manage them separately. And I think that's crucial and critical. But, you know, we, I, I think it's very, for us, we just want to be a super focused business that is world-class at what we do. And, and I think the best way to do that is not to expand into live underwriting. So we have no intention of doing that. Well, Tom, thanks so much for your time. Must be it's always a busy time at all times, um, particularly now with COVID nineteen and everything else. So, thanks so much for giving us some of your valuable time, and I hope you'll come and speak to us again soon. Definitely, thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>